So, other than your life, Prakash, do you know any jokes? Well, if it's going to be like that, I would say that our friendship definitely comes to mind. <laughs> but do you ever think a joke can go too far? <laughs> That's a tough one, man. And the answer might be different depending on who you ask. Personally, I usually don't have any limits when it comes to jokes, even if I don't find them funny. But I will say, though, that there are people who make hurtful statements that they try to pass off as jokes, but they do so without any comedic delivery. I wouldn't consider those statements to be the same thing as jokes. Yeah, I think that's fair. I grew up watching a lot of stand-up, in large part due to my dad and my family's influence. And for that reason, I was lucky to see the greats such as Richard Pryor, Dave Chappelle, Robin Williams, George Carlin, and countless others. One thing I do remember as the golden rule, though, mostly through their example, was that nothing is off-limits. So really, no joke can go too far for me. But I'm no expert. You know, one person we could ask is the CEO of Yuck Yucks, Mark Breslin. For those who may not be familiar, Yuck Yucks is one of Canada's largest comedy clubs and is a staple of Canadian comedy. It has 15 locations across Canada, and it continues to be a popular night out for Canadians. And comedy itself is a staple in Canada. We Have This Hour has 22 minutes. You also have the Rick Mercer Report. Just for Laughs. Kim's Convenience. Shit's Creek. Are you swearing already? It's only episode two. Sorry. Uh, Corner Gas. The Trailer Park Boys. The Kids in the Hall. The Life of Justin Bieber. What? What? All right, ignoring that. We also have The Beaverton. Kenny vs. Spenny. And so much more. We also have our own Canadian Comedy Awards. And let's not forget about our famous Canadian comedians, such as Mike Myers, Jim Carrey, Russell Peters, Howie Mandel, Seth Rogen, and many others. But I think it's time we ask Mark how comedy has changed throughout its history in Canada, as well as learn about how comedians get into the industry. Ugh, I can't believe that we're releasing this interview as our second episode. Why? Because it most likely be the one that gets us fired. Come on, man. Let's do it. Just for laughs. My name is Ajay. My name is Prakash. And this is the Real Talk Roundtable. Thanks again, everyone, for tuning in to another episode of the Real Talk Roundtable podcast. Today with us, we have Mr. Mark Breslin. Thank you again, Mark, for joining us. Yeah, well, I'm sitting here at a table, and I've got a microphone, and two guys sitting across from me with microphones. I feel like I'm giving a federal deposition. You're used to this, though. Uh, I, yeah, I guess I am. This is true. <laughs> for those of you who don't know, and if you don't, then really you need to re reevaluate things. Mark is the CEO and founder of Yuck Yucks Comedy Clubs, with 15 comedy clubs across Canada. He's also the founder and artistic director for the Humber College Comedy Program and a founding member of the Canadian Comedy Awards. He has acted as producer, executive producer, and story consultant for numerous television programs such as Late Night with John Rivers and Kenny vs. Spenny, among others. He is an author, a columnist, and has also worked in radio as program director for Laugh Attack on Sirius XM Canada. Breslin is also a much sought-after public speaker. Selecting speaking arrangements have included universities, colleges, the American Comedy Institute in New York City, the Big Bear Comedy Workshop in LA, and many more. Lastly, in 2014, Breslin was named one of the 180 most influential people to have ever been born and raised in Toronto, and in 2017 was awarded the Order of Canada, the second highest honor for merit in the system of orders, decorations, and medals of Canada. It's a big deal, they tell me. <laughs> so we hear as well. What are your thoughts on it, though? Well, you know, I'm not sure I could have predicted that, considering how humble my beginnings were, um, opening up a dirty mouth to a room full of, you know, 40 people in 1976. Um, everybody who I grew up with thought I had gone mad. All my friends were studying to be lawyers and doctors and uh, professors, and here I was with my lousy BA from York University, which would probably... Um, probably 
you know, prepare me to work for any taxi company in the world. Um, and I'm opening up a dirty mouth um, for something that's never been done before. My parents are arguing over a pistol to decide who should who shoot who first. Um, everybody thought I was had completely lost my mind. So if you start there and you flash forward 43 years to this incredible honor, um, and I'm one of the few people in show business who have ever gotten this honor, let alone right. in comedy, and I am the first person ever in the field of stand-up comedy to ever get that honor. Um, you really wouldn't have predicted it back in 1976. No. That is true. And while you certainly haven't lost your touch, nowadays, do you still introduce yourself as a comedian? Well, I'm not sure I ever introduced myself as a comedian. Um, I have always believed in my individuality in a way that um, I could not be defined by any role t or title. And so am I, was I a comedian? Well, yes, I was on stage for 20 years. So yes, com being a comedian is part of what I do, but being a businessman is part of what I do. Being a cultural politician is part of what I do. Being a writer is part of what I do. Being a broadcaster is part of what I do. Being a social worker is part of what I do because I really try to help people's lives. So, you know, one of the things that can keep you doing ostensibly the same thing for 43 years is that you're not really doing the same thing mm -hmm. for 43 years. This is true. But before all that yes. came comedy. And so maybe you could help us understand how did you get into comedy? Mm. Well, you know, there are people who they know all their lives ever since they're little kids. They go, I want to be a comedian. I want to do that. People would sit and watch the Ed Sullivan show and the comedian would go on and say, I want to do that. I never even thought that way. It never crossed my mind. I never thought of being in the comedy business until I was in the comedy business. I thought I would write. I thought I would be a good, serious novelist. I loved books. Uh, I loved thought. I was kind of, came from a kind of alternative background at the time in the 70s. Uh, and this is where I thought I was going to go. But when I worked at Harborfront, and I got that job by accident, um, I was exposed to a whole group of comics that I just fell in love with. And I started a comedy night there. And that may seem like nothing, but this had never been done in, in Toronto. There were no comedy nights. Right. And the people who got up there, it was a different kind of comedy than people were used to in Toronto. It was very personal. It was completely uncensored. And I thought, you know, they were speaking my language. And so I started to host those nights. And as I was hosting those nights, uh, I was doing a little material here and there. And then the material got bigger. And actually, I realized two years later, I actually had an act. Though it wasn't an act that I could, that they were going to put on CBC. <laughs> believe me. It was really, really transgressive. And I think to this day, I had one of the most transgressive acts that has ever been done on a tele, on a Toronto stage. I had we had cops coming in to watch what I do to see if they should charge me. That's how bad it was to the general public then. We definitely drew a line in the sand and said either you're hip enough to love this or you shouldn't be here. So you were public enemy number one at one point. I was public, yeah, enemy number one. I mean, there were all kinds of, you know, show business things that would not accept me. I don't know what they thought I would do. I'm I'm. Uh, I'm a well-bred boy <laughs> from Forest Hill. I don't know what they thought I would do. But, um, but that's how scary. I was a scary guy. And the people who are listening to this can't see me, but I'm five foot two. 
and, you know, <laughs> wearing a nice cashmere sweater. So I, I, I never understood the scariness because to me it was all a prank. It was all a put on. It was all an act. Right. But people took that act really seriously. And, you know, although I say I was never thinking of making a living as a, as a comic in any way, I realize now looking back on my life and my early life that I was being prepared for it without even knowing it. I used to watch a lot of TV as a kid. And I really watched every sitcom. I watched every classic sitcom you can imagine. I would watch, you know, for four or five hours a night, every night when I was 9, 10, 11, 12 years old. And I think all those comic structures kind of settled in the back of my brain. And I kind of knew what these things were. And I listened to a lot of comedy on records because that's what you did then. Um, in people's basements, we would listen to Lenny Bruce and Bill Cosby and, uh, you know, Mort Saul and, and everybody and all that sort of percolated. And uh, I guess, oh, and my cousin Victor bought me a three-year subscription to Mad Magazine when I was <laughs> 10 years old. Wow. And that was when Mad Magazine, that would have been, you know, 1962, that was when Mad Magazine really, really meant something. Right. So I think all these things kind of just percolated. And when I was ready to do comedy, I was able to draw on sources that I didn't really realize that I had. Now, before we get into what you're best known for, I would say, I know that typically when it comes to comedy or comedians in general, it granted, you know, it, in your case, you're saying it was more of a almost a defense mechanism or a way for you to kind of uh, protect yourself to some extent. But then it, it became more of a passion. But, and, re and revenge. And revenge, fair enough. Let's not leave out revenge as a great motivator. This is true. And kind of going down that route of revenge and maybe the more dark side, a lot of times comedy is bred out of that darkness. And was there any of that that kind of fostered that that development for you as well? or? Well, absolutely. I mean, it, I've always thought uh, when I was, you know, 21, 22 was a very bad time for me. Just before I got into show business and got into comedy, um, I didn't have the love that I expected to have from the world. You know, there were all these beautiful women, and why were they going for these football players and not for me? Don't, don't they understand that I've got what it takes? But, you know, it's funny. When you stand on a stage and you command a room of 200 people, um you're more important than the football player. I didn't realize that until then. You know all these incels that they talk about? Yes. Yeah, I could help them. All I would do is I would tell them to get into show business. They'll get all the girls they want. It's just that easy. It's, it's that easy. It's that easy. I would, well, I would also dress them better. But I would dress them better and get them into show business, and then they would have no problems. Show business is an amazing um, uh, leveler in it's a lot of ways. And so speaking of show business, yes. granted you may have just answered by saying, you know, it might have been for the girls to some extent and for the revenge. You opened your first Yuck Yucks in 1976, if we're correct. Yes. Can you lead us maybe a bit through how well, that came to yeah. be? Well, yeah. I mean, we were having a wonderful time at Harborfront, and then they replaced the person who was running it, and the new guy just didn't see the value of any of us. So they fired me. They fired the jazz person. They fired the theater person. They, they did a real house cleaning, and it wasn't for the better if you ask me, and at Carberfront has never recovered from that, um, from that uh, shift over, from, from that purge. Revenge. Yeah, so well, so all my friends said, now we have no place to perform. And I was always kind of the designated driver of, of everybody. Everybody else was really interested in getting high all the time, and I was kind of more of a sober guy. And I thought, well, yeah, maybe we could do something. So I told my friends 
that there was a, uh, a folk music cabaret in the basement of the community center at Bay and uh, sorry Church and Wellesley, and I called up my friend who was running that folk night because I was really into folk music too. Uh, comedy's not my only interest and was never my only interest. I was dating a uh, a folky at the time, a girl who was fantastic. And I wanted a place for her to perform, too. So I would go down all the time, and I got to know these people. And I said, hey, would you mind if I bring some friends of mine down to our comics? They could go on in between the, the folkies. said, yeah, let's try that. And it was a disaster because the audience for folk music and the audience for comedy are very different. The folkies are really idealistic, and they wear patchouli, and they smile a lot, and they want everybody to love them. The comics are at the back of the room uh, wearing various shades of black and chain-smoking and swearing. So it didn't work at all. However, I had my best idea out of that failure, because failure often breeds success. And the best idea was to go to the board of the community center and said, can I have my own night to do comedy? And they said, well, yeah, we only have Wednesday night available. Wednesday's like the worst night in show business. I said, I'll take it. And I called it Yuck Yucks, and I'm not to this day even sure why I called it Yuck Yucks. Although, looking back, it was a really smart move. You know, Rick Moranis, who was doing stand-up at the time, said, Mark, why, why, why are you calling it Yuck Yucks? You should call it like the Comedy Factory or the Comedy Store. And I said, I don't know, Rick. I just like Yuck Yucks. And he said, okay. But Yuck Yucks has kind of entered almost, it's like Kleenex. Mm -hmm. It's entered right. the lexicon. Um, there's a reason now I realize why I, I called it Yuck Yucks. What is that? Well, um, it's, a it's a lower chakra issue. Um, laughter comes from a lot of different places. And I've become very aware of the sound of laughter mm -hmm. and that the sound of laughter comes from whatever chakra it happens to be coming from. So if you're reading a New Yorker cartoon, you're laughing in a very different way than if you're watching Cheech and Chong. And I liked the, the bass end of laughter, which comes from the solar plexus. And it's a yuck, yuck, yuck. It's a big laugh. It's a hearty laugh. It's a therapeutic laugh rather than <laughs> It's not a chuckle. It's not a titter. It's a gut laugh. A gut laugh. And yuck, yuck sounded like this. But I wouldn't have been able to explain that to you in 1978 or 1976. It just intuitively felt right. I agree. Like, I think when I think of yuck yucks, it sounds like if you can make someone yuck yuck, you make them laugh, I think, for the bottom of their soul. Well, you know, and this gets into the issue of comedy as therapy. And if you've ever had, and I've had people say to me, um, why is the comedy so mean at yuck yucks? It's so, so often so mean. And it's true. And the outside of the building in the first club at Bay and Yorkville, it used to say, it's cruel inside, which was a parody <laughs> of the movie theaters, which said, it's cool inside. Right, and yes, we've always flirted with, with very cruel comedy, but the reason is, um, if you go for a massage, uh, the massage therapist touches you in a way that hurts at first before there's a release, mm -hmm. and then you feel better. And similarly, in the comedy that we like to do, that I like to do, um, yeah, it hurts, at first, and then it feels better because you've you've attacked the problem. Right, and I think to that point, you've you kind of mentioned that you don't look at yuck yucks as a business; you look at it as a cause. It has to be a business because it has to support itself, or none of us would be sitting in this office. Mm -hmm. um, it has to support my lifestyle; it has to support my family. But it is a cause. It has always been a cause. It has always been more than just a business. Sam Kinison used to call me the club. 
she used to call me the club owner who isn't. <laughs> <laughs> and why did he say that? Why did he say you're not because a club owner? Because you go to a whole bunch of clubs and the club owner bases the um, the booking on the on the drink sales, um, not on the artistic value of who's in the club. Mm. The club owner usually. Um, will not hire somebody who alienates a section of the audience. And as long as it's not too much, then I w- I've always been fine with it. I'll give them passes to another show. One thing I just want to dive back into very quickly with you is Yuck Yucks itself. You know, this is something that, you're right, is part of the lexicon now. Everyone just, it's almost synonymous with stand-up um, throughout North America and definitely in Canada. But much like Mad or Mad Magazine, you know, which eventually became Mad TV, it's people don't really understand the roots. You know, Mad Magazine, like you said, when it really was what it was, was because it was at the vanguard of that, that counterculture, right? Pushing back and really challenging and pushing the barriers. Um, you know, I think to some extent, even our generation, we take yuck yucks for granted. Um, we take the fact that it exists as just the status quo. But it wasn't always that way. And I know we left off with it being in the basement of the community center. No, How uh, did it come to what Well, it okay, what happened was... Um, and I guess this is an interesting story, too. Um, about nine or ten weeks into those Wednesday nights, I got a call from a guy at the uh, Globe and Mail, Jack Capizza. Right. Um, who said, I hear you're doing something interesting on Wednesday nights with comedy. Can I come down? Maybe I can write something about it. Said, sure. So he came down. I saw him writing in his little book. And at the end of it, he said, well, I think I can get something in maybe even this Saturday. I said, oh, that's great. So what did I expect? I expected a little blurb. Mm-hmm. Well, on that Saturday morning, I woke up later than most people as usual, and I had a, an answering machine, and usually would say how many, you know, uh, phone calls I've gotten, two or three. There were 42 uh, <laughs> calls on, on that, so I started playing them. Mark, go get the Globe and Mail. Mark, put on your, get out of your pajamas and go down and pick up the Globe and Mail. Mark, pick up the Globe and Mail. You won't believe it. So I ran out, I got the Globe and Mail, and Jack of Pizza had written an amazing article, which was the full two centerfold pages of the Globe and Mail in the entertainment section, plus a blurb on the front cover that you had to read this. It basically said, this is the most interesting thing to happen in comedy ever in the city. So the next week, like on the Wednesday, I went down to the club, usually like, you know, an hour early to set up, as I usually do. And instead of 40 people waiting in line to get in, there were over 900. (laughs) And it never let up from there. But that's not the end of that story. Right. Um, I had a friend who was a real, came from a real business background, and he was studying business at, at Stanford. And he came back to town in the summer, and he said, what are you doing? And I said, well, actually, I'm operating and performing in a comedy show. He said, what? I said, yeah, you want to come see it? Sure. So he comes to see it, and he, I said, what would you think? He said, I'm not a big comedy fan, but you have a business here. And I said, I do? He said, yeah, let me set you up. Well, I'm gonna get, we're going to raise some money. We're going to get a bank account. We're going to do all the things that you, know, you have to do. We'll find a space for you. And it took about a year. It took about a year. But we found the space at Bay in Yorkville, bashed out the walls. It was three boutiques. We bashed out the walls, painted the whole thing black um, so it would be like a theater. And we opened up, and it was packed from, the, from day one. But not everybody who came liked it because not everybody understood what comedy was as as I thought. As you understand. They right. thought they were going to come see Red Skelton <laughs> or something. And instead, they got me. 
and uh, Paul Mandel and a lot of, not Howie, uh, Paul Mandel and a lot of people who uh, were really crazed, marginal um, types who would say anything. There was no censorship whatsoever. And we would lose a third of the audience, a full third of the audience. And they would usually walk out when I was on stage because they wanted to make their point. The people would leave. And then, of course, they would never believe that I was actually the owner. So, you know, a week later, I'd get a letter in the mail. Letter, I'd open the letter up and it would say, uh, Dear sir, I was at your club on such and such a night and I was amazed and disgusted to find that the MC was doing uh, disgusting jokes uh, uh, that insulted Jesus and, um, uh, and, and abortion jokes. And, I, and he goes on, What kind of place do you think you're running? I insist you show that to the owner. So I had a stamp made up, a rubber stamp. Right. And the stamp said in huge cap letters, Eat shit and die. And then in nice sort of wedding font, the Yuck Yucks Management. Profound. Right. And I would take the, the stamp and I would stamp the letter that they'd sent me, Eat Shit and Die, the Yuck Yucks Management, and I would mail it back to them. Huh? That's one way to do business. How do you rebuttal to that? I don't really know how to respond to that. Before. Well, it was punk. Yeah. And also it wasn't so stupid because you've lost that customer and anybody they like anyway. Mm-hmm. Better I... Better to develop the legend. Uh, I've lived a life committed to an extreme form of individualism, um, an extreme form of um, not caring what people thought as the only thing that people thought. Sure, of course, I'd rather be liked than not liked, but I don't think I would make a lot of changes in my life to be liked by everybody. There's a a play, a musical called Title of Show. It's a an off-Broadway musical. It's a great off-Broadway musical. There's a lyric in there that I really like, which is, I'd rather be nine people's favorite thing than a hundred people's ninth favorite thing. Mm -hmm. And I I like that lyric. I think that kind of sums up where I'm coming from. Of course, everyone likes to be liked, but I think it's like, you know what, let me at least be who I am, and if you you, you take me for who I am. Well, people are also, it's too easy to be liked now because of the internet. Mm -hmm. All you do is you press like, and you're a friend. Hey, how many friends do you have? I have 5,000 friends. No, you don't have 5,000 friends. None of those people are your friends. Um, Elie Wiesel, who was a Holocaust philosopher, won the Nobel Prize, died recently. He was giving a speech to um, incoming students at Harvard, and he said, you know, you you people, you, you young people, it's so easy for you to be liked. Being liked is so easy. It's to be somebody's friend is so easy. Do you know what friendship was for me growing up as a Jew during the war in, in Poland? Will you hide me? Hmm. That was a friend. And I have very good friendships that go back, you know, decades and decades. And my friends would hide me. <laughs> and I would hide my friends. And I don't think you can count on those 5,000 people to do those things for you, no. <laughs> uh, all they have to do is press like. Yeah. It's just ridiculous. No. And so I guess to that point, um, you've mentioned the internet. Like, How do you think the internet's changed comedy? Well... Um, everybody thinks they're, they've got a following now because everybody does. The following may only be eight people, but hey, they've got a following. And I think that the internet has created a lot of false hope for a lot of comics or would-be comics. And um, there's a rude awakening coming for them um, when this cycle comes around and they realize they're 40 years old, they're 45 years old, and no one will hire them. Mm-hmm. All they can do is open mic nights. Um, it's a... Uh, Malthusian nightmare. You know about the economist Thomas Malthus? Yes. Okay, so Malthus in the 1700s 
um, had a curve. It was actually two curves. And the first curve was an arithmetic curve, and the second curve was geometric. The geometric curve showed how uh, resources would outstrip uh, sorry, how population would outstrip resources. resources. Well, it never actually happened quite that way in the Western world because he never, uh, he never thought of birth control. But um, it certainly has happened in the third world, and it's happening now in the comedy world because there's more and more and more and more and more and more comics all the time. Everybody wants to do comedy. Everybody's got 10 minutes. <laughs> and the number of places who are actually able to pay has stayed more or less the same or grown at a very slow rate. So you're just having that gap is getting bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And I think a lot of people are going to be very disappointed in the next decade. So I guess you're saying that the barriers of entry have become so low that you have so many people, the noise of comedians is quite high, so that to actually make it, you actually have to be like the top of your craft. Yes, you always had to be at the top of your craft, but there weren't so many people crowding the field mm-hmm. um, and muddying the, the waters. Um, also, what's happened is because of the Internet, um, all – the old media has become weaker. So the getting somebody who's like a Jerry Seinfeld is becoming much less likely Mm -hmm. because everything's become fragmented. So it's kind of like what's happened in popular music where somebody will have, you know, three hits and then they're gone. Where are they? They're, they're finished. Do you think that's because of comedy or do you think that people's attention spans have changed, that they need things to be extreme to get their attention? It's too easy to have access to too much. There's too much choice now. And because there's too much choice, see, I I actually am so old-fashioned that I actually believe in the notion of gatekeepers, Um, cultural gatekeepers who would, um, you know, call the herd in a sense so that the audience had a, a reasonable number of choices to choose from. Now there's an unreasonable number of choices so that nothing gets chosen. Mm. And, I mean, I would even argue that there's not necessarily quality control either, right? I mean, just votes of the majority does not necessarily mean that something is truly comedy or quality material, right? I mean, like you were talking about when it comes to popular music, I mean, the control back in the day was not just gatekeepers, it was the financial restrictions. I mean, if you wanted to get your music out there, you had to, one, get a get a production company or a record label to actually listen to your demo, choose to finance your demo, print copies, print promo copies. I mean, there was, there and was look, so you much can, behind You can attack that model as being anti-democratic, <laughs> and it is. Um, but the good part of the anti-democratic part of it is that um, it actually increased the potential of quality. Right. I mean, I don't want to be one of those old guys who says, I, I, don't, I haven't listened to any music since 1990, but frankly, I haven't listened to any music from ni- since 1990. And I'll play my eight-year-old stuff that's be on the radio now, and I'll play him the stuff from the 60s and 70s, and he knows the difference. Right. And the same thing is happening in comedy. It's become uh, really uh, ephemeral, very throwaway, um, you know, there's no new George Carlin. Mm-hmm. Yes, that's and, true. And um, I'm not sure there ever will be. There's a lot of people doing a lot of, a lot of little cool things, and it's and that's not quite what it should be. There are there are no new real superstars of comedy. But do you do you feel that's only attributed to I guess the level of access that people have, or is it also because of the fact that comedians such as yourself and and those who you've helped support and and build careers with. You know, you kind of paved the way in terms of normalizing a counterculture, making it a little bit more acceptable. And that's a good way of putting it. Right. Now it almost seems that that counterculture is the norm. It has become mainstream. It's become mainstream to seem to be outside of the ordinary to the extent to which it now isn't so yes, unordinary. And yes, it's a very good point. I mean, I think this is, uh, I think there's a, 
uh, an art critic who talks about the shock of the new um, and how it's almost impossible to shock anymore. Um, so because the, and because that shock factor isn't there anymore, um, it doesn't have the the power of something new anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, and I listen. I remember doing comedy. Even myself, we'd go out to Edmonton to open up our club. What do you kind of comedy do you think they'd seen in Edmonton? Almost nothing. And I would go on and I would do stuff that I don't know. It wasn't even really shocking. And people would just be covering their <laughs> mouths and their eyes would be agape and they would be uh, just in complete shock and, and, and delight. Um, but you won't find that now. Mm-hmm. You won't find that now. I think people are desensitized to it. Yes, they're desensitized to, to what comedy should be doing. Now, granted, it's a different world, but I mean, some of the comedians that have come through the your clubs you know, just using one example let's say russell peters right mm-hmm. i mean he's, a, he's an often used example the reason i focus on him though is that i mean he built his career in a time where social media wasn't the thing yet youtube wasn't the thing yet he still managed to translate that talent into the social media era I mean, he's one of the first one of the first right so then my question to you is i mean you obviously still have a viable business model you're building two new clubs oshawa burlington being the new locations so there's still an appetite for that but do you feel that building comedians that way still translates into what could become superstars? Because I've seen you, I've, I've also heard that your opinions on, you know, performing for stadium-sized crowds, it's not the same thing, and it's not as intimate as, you know, stand-up comedy in a room of 200 people well, coming to the stage. I mean, I've seen Russell Peters in a room full of 200 people, right. and I've seen Russell Peters in a room of 20,000 people, and to me, he's funnier in a room full of 200 people. Because you can't do anything subtle in a room of 20,000 people. <laughs> and comedy depends on some subtlety. Russell has that ability. But, of course, who wants to turn down, you know, half a, half a million dollars a night? Mm-hmm. But, you know, you see this in the Kevin Hart um, stuff on, on Netflix. Mm-hmm. And, and he can't wait to find an even bigger arena right. to, to do. But it, bigger doesn't necessarily mean better. Um, I think that there's a, a sweet spot for comedy. Um, which is not too small, not too big. I think that the perfect comedy environment and experience is somewhere between, say, 150 and 400 seats. Uh, But when you go, there's nothing, nothing that would ever take the place of live interactive experience um, of a comedy show. Watching it on TV is just not the same. You can watch all the porn you like, but until you have that woman in your bed... It just isn't the same. Nothing replaces the real thing. Nothing replaces the real thing. It's hard to argue with that. Yeah, you know. <laughs> well, look. I'll give, okay, a more mainstream uh, reference is. Right. You know, you want you want to watch the do you want to watch the football game in the football field? Do you want to watch it on TV? But the real experience, the electric experience of being sharing something with strangers, which is something we don't do enough. Um, that's got to be live. I agree. Like, I remember when I go to comedy clubs, I never forget that experience. But if you were to ask me, like, a Netflix special, sometimes I'll be like, oh, yeah, I think I did watch that, but it's not as vivid. How do you tell the real talent now? How do you tell who's really a superstar? Well, not necessarily a superstar, but who's really a good comedian? How do you define good comedy these days? You look for a lot of different markers. Um, The first thing, of course, is originality. Originality is the most important thing. Um, If you feel like you've heard the jokes before... 
Well, you don't laugh at them. So you're looking for people who are good writers. So I would say it's more important than somebody being a good writer than a good performer because a good writer can learn to perform, but a good performer can't necessarily learn how to write. Write Write and think and what I say, see comedy. So that's really, really important. Then you want somebody who has a big personality. Personality often includes what I'll call a comic flaw. This is a technical term. Comic flaw means something in their act which as a real person would be kind of obnoxious, but as a comic, it's funny. Right. I'll give you examples. Roseanne's vulgarity, <laughs> or Woody Allen's neurosis, or Jerry Seinfeld's fussiness. Yes. Now, if you actually had a friend who was that fussy, you just wouldn't want to be around them very much. Ah, but when they're on stage exaggerating that flaw, it becomes the funniest thing in the world. So you're looking for something like that. That is gold, if you can find that. Because as somebody once said, all comedy starts with character. So just shifting gears a bit, away kind of, uh, way a little bit from the human side of things or the personality side of things, just focusing a little bit more on the technology, not necessarily social media alone, but okay. that coupled with, I would say, ubiquity and access. So comedians like Dave Chappelle is one of many who has fans lock away their cell phones during a show. How do you think that comedy has changed from since the widespread emergence of smartphones and social media? Well, we don't... We don't ask anybody to do that at Yuck Yucks. No, I know we that. we have people actually shooting comics while they're while they're working, and unless the comic has said to me specifically, "Don't let anybody do that," we just don't get in their way. Sometimes the comic likes that. The reason Chappelle the Chappelle does that for two reasons. Um, one, um, he may be working on something new that isn't quite finished yet, and if you see something that isn't quite finished yet the point will be lost or you'll get the wrong point. And the second reason is he doesn't want product out there that he isn't getting, getting paid for. Right. And it gets in the way of people, you know, subscribing to Netflix or buying his uh, DVDs online or whatever whatever it might be or streaming his stuff. So that's why people do it. You know, they do that for um, movies. I've done movie criticism. And uh, when you show up on the Wednesday for the Friday movie that's going to open, if it's a big movie... They take away your cell phones, and they they lock them up, and then you get them when you leave the theater. Okay. The the reason why I asked you, though, Mark, uh, just delving a little bit deeper into that, I mean, one of your tenets around comedy and around your clubs and and the culture of it is is freedom of speech. Don't censor. Like you said, you might comp a ticket to a patron who might be offended, but you will never ask a comedian not to say something. That is correct. Um, As long as he gets laughs. Right. And and granted, around kind of the the idea that, you know, you don't want material out there that either you're not getting paid for or maybe you don't want out there yet. But I was trying to delve a little bit deeper into the side of people being outraged, you know, things being taken out of context. And that's something, you know, that has happened in the past where people have taken short cell phone video clips of an act and taken it completely out of context. People get outraged and the media takes it away before you even have a chance to really come back. And really, that's not a comedian's job. It's not to apologize for right. their material, right. right? So that's kind of where I was going with this. Yeah, it's, it's, I guess it's an issue now. It's not that much of an issue at my club because I don't have... Famous comics here in the same right. way that they might, you know, if you're in New York and uh, Jerry Seinfeld drops into the comedy cellar, does a set, it's a sloppy set because he's still working on it, uh, or he says something that he's trying to make a point, a uh, satirical point, but he hasn't figured out how to exactly get there yet, and somebody tapes it, they put it on, and now he looks like a racist, or he looks like right. a, an insensitive clod, or whatever he might look like. And of course, nobody wants that. Yeah, it's a, it's a danger now. But not something you're concerned with. 
Not really. It, uh, we haven't had many of these problems here because, you know, we're Canada. And what happens here just doesn't matter as much. <laughs> well, that's great for Canadian pride. I, <laughs> it's I, honest. No, it's realistic it, I agree. That. I mean, whose career are you going to wreck? Jerry D's or uh, Ron James? <laughs> yeah, that's fair. And they're at the top. Yes, yeah. Well, then, to that point, what's your long-term vision with Yuck Yucks? I'm living it. After 43 years, I'm, I'm, in, I'm in the middle of it. I'm trying to right. always respond to the changes, um, you know, in our society and how that might reflect on the clubs. But I am not running it all that differently than I did back in 1978 when I founded it. It's more professional now. You know, it's smoother, it's slicker. I have a bank account. I don't pay people out of a shoebox, which I did for the first two years. Um, so, yeah, all those sorts of things. I have a staff that I can trust. Um, everybody has a very specific job that they do. But I'm st- but the ethos is still the same. Fair enough. And, I mean, you, you keep that culture alive here definitely through this chain. And, like I said, it's synonymous with stand-up. It's synonymous with comedy in Canada and even outside of Canada. Moving away from the showbiz side of things just as, as we start to move along, Comedy has traditional been, traditionally been a platform for political and social commentary. I mean, that's something that I, I hold dear and, and something that at first I think attracted me to stand-up. Uh, but do you think comedians are able to use that platform more freely or less freely than they used to? Hmm. Well, it's a good question. I mean, it depends where. First of all, there's never been so many political shows on U.S. television uh, attacking the president of the United States directly. Right. That's you know Certainly, if you go back to the 70s when Nixon was the the most hated president in the history of, of presidents. Um, there was very little um, work being done. And in fact, the one show, which was the Smothers Brothers show, that was doing that was canceled under Nixon's orders. I didn't know that. Wow. Mm. That's a good story. Um, so uh, I think in some ways political comedy, especially in the States, is, is better than ever. On the other hand, there are an awful lot of comedy clubs that will tell that will not book comics that have um, very strong anti anti Trump um, attitudes outside of obvious blue state places because a third of the audience is going to say I'm never coming back here because they're so, they're supporting the president because they're supporting the president so I book a lot of those comics here. Uh, do you think comedy's gotten more politicized? In some ways, yes. In some ways, no. Um, like I say, there's more people doing this kind of stuff, but it plays better on television than it does in clubs, um, and be- mostly because um, it's it's disposable. <laughs> Problem with topical material of any kind is that it isn't really very valuable a week from now. Yeah, right. And if you're developing a, a club act and you have a great piece on what Trump just did, by the time it gets really good, mm-hmm. it'll be on a day because he had just done something new. Mm-hmm. But if you have access to, you know, millions of people every night, you can do that joke, get it out of the way, have people see it, have people laugh at it, have people appreciate it, and you can move on. You don't have to cling to it. Right. It takes the average person, if you're doing a live act, it takes the average comic about a year and a half to develop a 30-minute piece. Wow. Maybe longer, maybe longer. To that point with Trump, especially because so many comedians are making fun of him, do you think it's too easy now to... It's a bit of a fish in a barrel thing. I mean, I despise Trump, but Trump humor has just become so easy that I'm kind of bored by it now. But So then let me press you on something, Mark, yeah. because you said that, you know, it's political commentary, political comedy, you know, is as great as it's ever been. But if I can maybe 
push on that a bit. The political com the political comedy and social commentary that you know really got me into stand up comedy is almost timeless because yeah, granted there were you know figures like Nixon and Reagan and, and all these comedy bits. But the general societal issues that they were commenting on, I mean, even during your era, as you were coming up as a comedian, I mean, that was the Vietnam War era, civil rights, action. Those are still themes that still resonate today. You can listen to one of those bits and still feel that to your heart. Maybe. I feel actually that whenever there's a reference that's out of time, it takes you away from the bit for that moment, and that's not a good thing. So that when you're listening to, um, uh, you're listening to somebody talk about... Uh, uh, the Vietnam War, the word Vietnam immediately makes you think, okay, that's not now. And, and it's very quick right, right in your brain, and that takes you away from the joke. And now you're not laughing as hard. Um, it has to be, if you're going to do current events, comedy, it has to be current. Um, try listening to some of Mort Salzl's stuff about Eisenhower. And they're great jokes. But they're about Eisenhower. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know? So, yes, I guess the theme of, you know, um, you know, the military industrial complex still holds, but you're not really thinking about that. You're thinking about, it's about Eisenhower. <laughs> right. He's talking about a dead guy. It just doesn't have the same resonance. Well, I think since Mark, you wanted to freestyle this interview, we had no choice but to be your hype man. And so we're just going to do a little bit of hyping for you. So Mark is the author of The Yuck Yuck's Guide to Canadian Stand-Up on sale at Indigo Canadian and Amazon. You've also opened two brand new clubs. Where are those, Mark? Burlington and Oshawa, two very different communities. One kind of an upper middle class community, and one is a community that's really suffering right now economically. Just out of curiosity, do you have any clubs in Oakville? We had one in Oakville. Um, it closed down not because there was anything wrong with it. And not because you called them out. Not because I called them okay. out. Okay. <laughs> no, it, it, sometimes clubs close for reasons right. that have nothing to do with the, the club. The whole That whole... Uh, building we were in was expropriated and turned into something else, and there wasn't another appropriate deal. So, fair enough. And to be honest, we're just poking fun, and that's all we can really say about Century Markets. It's, it's been fun. Okay. It's been a privilege. <laughs> um, and thank you so much for taking the time to kind of walk us through your career, the state of stand-up right now, the state of comedy. Um, and like we said, can't really figure out who better to to comment on that at this point in time. But uh, we really appreciate, I guess, the unfiltered content and kind of giving us your raw opinion and to be honest in doing our research we knew you were going to give us that regardless and so uh, thanks for staying on brand I don't think I could do anything else but be you yeah yeah well, once again thank you Mark okay thanks you really can't say Joe Rivers man listen English isn't my first language okay it's my only <laughs> well considering how big of a deal Mark is it was nice they were able to have such a candid conversation with him I do agree with them though that since it's easier to get into the industry now, I have noticed that the quality of comedy has gone down. And while I'm bored by the daily Trump jokes as well, I actually do find it to be objectively funny. And you gotta admit that Trump does make it too easy in giving late night comedians fresh new material every day. What did you think of Mark's argument that comedians should have no filter, and to treat comedy like the free market? Yeah, I don't think comedians should have a filter either. I think that if there's an audience that wants to hear it, then in the spirit of free speech, who should stop them? With respect to political comedy though, I do see Mark's point about losing the audience to dated references, but when the comedy is more about themes rather than dates or names, I think it still resonates. I'd reckon that Dave Chappelle's sketch about police brutality and racial profiling in the US is just as relevant today as it was when he recorded it 20 years ago. I don't know about that, buddy. I think we solved racism already. Um, 
But all jokes aside, whether or not you agree with any of the points brought up in the episode, we do hope that you enjoyed listening and hopefully learned a thing or two. Thank you to Kyra Williams, Vice President of Operations for Yuck Yucks, for assisting us with the scheduling of the podcast. And don't forget to follow our social media pages on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram for updates. Feel free to share your comments with us. And if there are any future topics that you'd like us to explore, please let us know. Finally, if you like what we discussed today, feel free to share it with family and friends. We truly appreciate the support. Thank you for listening. And we hope you'll join us on the next episode of the Real Talk Roundtable. Thank you.